You're listening to the AFL Unlimited podcast, where we tackle all the hot topics in the AFL and bring you up to speed with everything you need to know in the football landscape. We'll take a look at this weekend's games and have some mixed discussion about what to expect. Let's head up to the box for the opening bounce. It was a grand old flag indeed, and potentially a grand new flag as Melbourne broke their 57-year premiership drought with a stirring victory over the Dogs on Saturday night to win their first flag in 57 years, as I mentioned. It was an amazing game. It looked like it was going to be one of the best grand finals we'd seen in recent years before it broke open late. Boys, you're all here with us today. How are you all? We're all very well. Cheers. <laughs> okay, not the only one to watch the talk. Yeah, I'm good, mate. Good. It's uh, end of 2021 for the AFL landscape. How crazy. What what a quick season. It sure has been. Shorty, a rare appearance for you, but always there for the big moments. <laughs> yes, yes. Good to see you, fellas. So it's it feels like it's gone by in the blink of an eye this season. Now at stages, you know, it was sort of hanging around rounds 12, 13, 14, and it seemed like it'd been a, a big year. But the last few weeks, even with the week break uh, for, before the grand final was gone through very quick. And boys, I don't think any of us predicted that the Demons were going to, after two years ago, finishing 17th, win the flag this year. It's been an incredible rise and they look destined now to do what Richmond did recently and create a dynasty team. Yeah, they could. Wow. I mean, like you said, they, they really dropped right off, didn't they? There was turmoil for a bit there. Pressure on Goodwin, even coming into this year. And and boy, they delivered. I think they were the one team by the end of it that when they got on top, they just crunched sides. So, um, yeah, they were pretty impressive, weren't they? It was yeah, really good go, go stuff to see. Um, I, I probably don't really uh, uh, tend to f- agree with the dynasty building side. I think anytime someone wins a flag now, everyone says that they're going to be a dynasty building team. But um, in, in the case of the Demons, I think before the grand final, people were saying that either team could become a dynasty. Well, if that's the case, then it's not very likely that they'll, like as likely they'll be a dynasty if there's another team right next to them who's also potentially a dynasty team. You could see a back and forth between the two or you, or other young and upcoming sides, you know, coming and taking the mantle. But I definitely think that the Demons have the age demographic and the talent on every end to, to keep up solid performances for, for the years to come, definitely. Yeah, it was amazing how they finished 17th a couple of years back because that's kind of around the time they got Lee, <laughs> uh, May, May and Lever. Lee and Maver. <laughs> He's, He's done it. Dale Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> I've, done a, I've done a Healy Gerald. Um, so yeah, it was you thought they get those guys in and all of a sudden they become a good side and they just didn't quite gel together. They were they were always beast or honeypot, as as we heard quite commonly. And they got the ball inside 50, uh, I suppose quite a fair bit, but they just weren't able to really make uh, efficient entries. They've really been able to solidify their back line um and their forward line looks a lot more dangerous, a lot more open now. So yeah, they had a good stretch at the end of 2020. I think they won six and three um, and did really well there. And building into this year, they, they barely put a foot wrong and they, they lost a few games, as we know, but um, they were against sort of lower-ranked sides that were certainly up for the fight on the day where Melbourne probably had a, a downer sort of set up, like, like every side had, had their struggles throughout the year for um, you know, losing a few games here and there. I'm probably with Chuck too, on the dynasty thing. It's a, it's a pretty interesting chat, but... It's not the first time we've sort of heard it. Um, you know, probably Collingwood and even the Dogs in 2016. Like Chuk sort of mentioned, it's it's so tough to have a dynasty, but they put forward a pretty good case. I mean, you look at their stars are in their absolute prime. They've got a few young guys who are on the up too, and um, there's no reason why they, they wouldn't be contending for a long time. But, yeah, it's certainly not easy to, to be a dynasty, but... Looking at this century, it seems yeah, easier the, than other times. I was going to say, there certainly has been, and, you know, Tiz, you've been getting around the uh, the show on the AFL website, the Dynasty Show, and they've, they've highlighted Brisbane, and there would have been some great insights from, you know, that successful team. But we've seen, you know, three really successful teams um, of, the, of the 2000s, you know, win multiple premierships for, you know, Hawthorne, Brisbane, Cats, and Richmond now. And Melbourne, I think I say that not as an absolute guarantee, but they just seem to have that makeup, you know, of their list is at a really, you know, prime cherry ripe position. And to be honest, their youth came in and, and pushed them back up into some form and pushed them into that really solid 
um, form going into finals. And, and then obviously that Cats win, I think, where Gorn kicked the goal out of the siren is what pretty much gave them the confidence that they could absolutely do it. And one thing I noticed during the week, and it's a credit to the Melbourne fitness staff, but they actually, the Demons actually had the most players ever in a grand final team in 10 that have played every game of the season. And some of those names included Clayton Oliver, Petrarca, Max Gorn, Jake Lever. And, you know, when you're getting players like that playing every game of the year, you know, we always use Geelong as an example, but when you're losing Stewart and really important players like that, like Parfit in the final series, it just makes it almost impossible to keep that momentum up and, and win flags out of nowhere. And we saw that with the dogs as well, losing Keith and uh, Waitman throughout the finals and really struggling there in the long run at the end of that final itself. Yeah, so, it, yeah, Chuck. I was just going to say, when you're talking about fitness and, and you know, how well it had been, it's, the big news that um, Darren Burgess obviously was a major factor as their head of fitness and yeah. um, their high performance manager. I believe he's just left to join yep. the Adelaide Crows. Yeah, Basically said, mission accomplished. I took Melbourne where they need to be. Now <laughs> moving on. But it'd be interesting to see what impact he can have at the Crows and, and, and what Melbourne can you know build from, from what he's obviously already left with them. Yeah, well, he was at Port Adelaide in 2013-14 when they had a real crack at a flag then. And it's no surprise where... Uh, when people like that, like Choc- Choc- Chocolate, Choco Williams and uh, Chocolate Williams, <laughs> Choco Williams and uh, Darren Burgess are at clubs and make, make them better clubs. And, you know, Neil Barn, uh, Brian Cook's going to do good things at Carlton. Absolutely no coincidence there. But we'll get into our initial thoughts of the game itself, guys. We'll go around and just get our, you know, initial reaction of the game itself, the players, some big plays. Um, we're going to go into what each of us think is the moment of the game, which could have decided the result either way. And then there'll be some things we'll follow up from there. But it's going to be a big review episode of the grand final. We'll start off with Shorty, who's our rare guest now on the show. But take it away, mate. You always have a keen eye on these things. But how did you see it? Yeah, mate. No, I, was, I hope this is remembered as a classic because... It really was. I know the scorecard in the end, you know, it blew right out. The D's just stormed away. But this really did seem like one of the great grand finals we've seen. Um, it ebbed and flowed. And particularly the the first quarter, you thought, gee, the D's are just going to go on their merry way. Then the dogs fall back. And look, I think Bontempelli was looming as a you know, grand final hero, just doing what we probably thought he could do for so long. He was amazing in their 2016 win as well. Put him 19 points ahead. And I just think we spoke all week about the dominance of Petrarca, Oliver and um, Gorn, and they were the guys in the end. I know there are other people that contributed and that type of thing, but their surges out of the middle, the way they were able to get on top around the ball and, and, and turn the game was pretty impressive. So like I touched on before, when the Ds got on top, they were able to crunch teams pretty regularly in the back half of the season and, and particularly when the whips were cracking. But, um, yeah, I, I certainly hope that it is remembered as one of the great grannies because for the most part, it really was. It was definitely uh, an exhilarating game to watch. It was moments where you just thought, oh, gee, the, the D's are going to D's by how much when they, you know, get 21 points up in the, in the opening term. Like it, it's so crucial to be, you know, settle early and, and get some scoreboard pressure going on. But they had nine scoring shots early on in the piece. Then the dogs hit back, uh, you know, big time. They swing a massive punch uh, their way. And then they kick the first couple, the third, and then, uh, yeah, it gets out to 19. And you kind of go, gee whiz. Uh, and the moment of when Caleb Daniel and Max Gorn collide and, uh, you know, yeah. da- Daniel takes Gorn to the ground, you know, he hits his head a little bit. And you kind of think, oh, they're 19 points up. And Daniel's like the, sim- the symbolism of that it could have just huge, easily gone the dog's way. And, and um, insane yeah. that that's probably Brian Taylor's best ever call as well. Daniel and Goliath is, is really good, but shame <laughs> yeah. the game was terrible. <laughs> yeah, but an absolute masterclass from Melbourne when, when it really mattered. Um, I'm sure we'll touch on plenty of moments throughout the game, but yeah, when, when it when it needed a hero, um, Christian Petrarca and, and many others stood up when it mattered most, especially that in that midfield battle, which we'll, we'll definitely digest a bit later on. But, yeah, just a great, great response. And um, I think, yeah, they were almost destined to take it out with the ability for them to just break away from sides, as we've seen, you know, um, against uh, Brisbane and, and Geelong especially, and uh, obviously the Dogs of late. And um, what, what a premiership and what a drought to uh, finally break, Chook. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I really think the, the key moment of the big event on the day was those last 10 to 15 metres. It, it almost looked like Petrocelli was going to catch Josh Rotham, but <laughs> really he, he just kept powering through. And, and obviously he's the, the <laughs> smile of Colgate at the moment. Like that was really impressed with that effort. No, Did you actually get to watch um, the sprint, Chuck? Because I'm pretty sure yeah, they ran a, coverage didn't actually show yeah, it. So I caught yeah. this, the, the last bit where he ran around the arc or whatever. Uh. Um, or whatever no for the the actual game really was looking like melbourne had kind of were going to be starting off pretty well or the dogs i don't don't know really what was going to happen it seemed such a topsy-turvy to start with and then the dogs got out into a lead and it was like almost a lot of people when um it almost looked like after johannesson took that mark in the goal square that doggies were going to kind of just keep on powering through from there and I was like oh no I want a Melbourne comeback <laughs> boy did they come back Melbourne um really I think in the end it, it did come down to Melbourne's just midfield power as as you guys suggested you know they were able to like they did with Geelong go straight down the front they weren't past tapping it backwards to someone to handball around and then work forward they were going straight through streaming into the 50 and kicking those last three or four goals of that third quarter is, is probably really what got them there, that momentum killer. And yeah, I would probably put it down to that, that just before the, the third quarter ended those quick goals that just came straight out of the ruck taps. I think it kind of, the dogs were kind of feeling like, all right, there's only if, you know, a minute left or 30 seconds left in the quarter it's basically over. Let's re- they're almost in a let's reset for the final quarter. And and Melbourne said, nah, we're going to pile this on and, and go hard. And boy, did they. And that momentum was gone from that moment on. There was nothing the dogs were going to be doing there, Langers. Yeah, you're spot on there, Chuck. And, you know, it was it was somewhat an easily predictable game in regards to certainly not the, res- the result in the final score, but... Um, you know, we were speaking about the strengths and the weaknesses of each club and, you know, not to pump my own tires, but I did put uh, Aaron Norton as number five in our most influential plays uh, countdown on our Instagram. If you wanted to have a look back at the post there, I said, if he was able to dominate the air, he would be the reason that the dogs could win. He actually had zero marks inside 50, which pretty much goes to answer how much the dogs didn't capitalize on some of their inside fifties when they, when they could have, he did obviously kick a really good goal when the dogs did have that really hot run. But other than that sort of 25 minute period and maybe 10 minute period, the start of the third quarter, the dogs weren't really in the game, to be honest, the first quarter, they were thereabouts, but the D's at stage of the first quarter looked like they were going to have it one tiz. but um, you know, it, we spoke about again, the strengths and weaknesses of each club. And I think the demons strengths were so much stronger than the dogs and, the dog's weaknesses were so much stronger than the demons, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it definitely came down to center bounce breaks um, oh. where the game changed. It was, it was quite impressive. We saw with a minute ago, they kicked three goals inside of a minute of game yeah. time. And um, yeah, all that was off the back of just brilliance uh, in the, in the middle and probably the inability for the dogs to be able to defend um, you know, the D's going out front of stoppage, but I mean, Geelong uh, definitely struggled on that front as well. Uh, the week before with 100 points out of stoppage. So definitely when Petrarca and, and Oliver and these guys in the middle, uh, you know, it, t- it takes it takes um, freakish <laughs> abilities really to to do what they were able to do, um, to have that speed, the the finesse and, uh, you know, the ability to be, be composed and find a way. They were, they were just absolutely deadly. Everything they touched turned to gold. Um, you know, after that um, that clearance that Viney got got out to Harms, and then the kick out to space to Fridge, which which is where it, the game basically you could pick that moment there where it sort of changed around it uh, a fair bit. But yeah, the days behind the ball are so solid. Um, yeah, they they don't give you much of a chance there. And they what got the dogs back in the game? They were able to win contests. They were winning a lot of ground ball and um, you know repelling a lot of the Deviants uh, forays and. That, yeah, they just look very dangerous when they did go inside 50 of the dogs. So I think they had five entries, four goals won. So these uh, were struggling to win those um, those key one-on-one battles sort of in that second and third term. But we're able to uh, get enough ascendancy and enough field position and put so so much scoreboard pressure on so quickly. Uh, just blew the dogs out of the park with a 24-point lead at three-quarter time. Short. 
Yeah, and Trelaw certainly silenced a few people, didn't he? He was, you know, had some other good finals games in amongst that poor one, but he was their fire starter there. And I think you touched on Norton there, Langers. Yeah, the marks inside 50, he probably didn't do himself too many favours. If, you, if you're listening to David King, just, you know, his work inside the 50 might have had a little bit of uh, you know, more to do than the kicks or anything mm. like that or fortune. But, yeah, like you guys have touched on, those goals where they stream out of the middle, and you know, they were six points, but you're just watching, you just felt oh. like the Ds are going all the way here. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes in the big dance, you know, with such a hoodoo over a side, there's, there's opportunities to get nervous and get in your head and, and supporters would have been thinking that. But those goals, it just it had such a significance to the whole feel of the game. It was like, no, nah, this side's not crumbling. They're going all the way. They've been challenged and now they're, you know, it was going to take something miraculous for the dogs to turn that tidal wave. It was flowing all demons, wasn't it? Yeah, you're spot on there. And it, it just felt so strange that at one point, the dogs had kicked nine out of the last 10 goals and they only got to 19 points in front. And I think, you know, a big part of that reason, and Geelong fans will know, when you give such a big advantage in the first quarter, and I think the Demons were up by 27 points at one stage, and then for the dogs to kick nine of the next 10 goals and still only be up by just three goals. And then you're right, Short, when, when the Demons started piling on all those goals, it just felt like a multiplier, didn't it? Like they kicked, you know, three in that last minute, but it just felt like 60 points. And Chook, like we, we were speaking about, you know, that momentum change and how how powerful it was. I don't think any of us have ever seen a momentum change that quick and that damaging. You know, it was like gone in 60 seconds. The game was pretty much lost in that in that final minute of the third, uh, the third quarter, Chook. Yeah, it, it really was. And as I touched on, it, yeah, it looked like they were kind of spent, the dogs there. And one of the key contributors really was... The dogs are definitely a momentum side. They're definitely a pressure side. So I feel like what other clubs were when the dogs were able to take those clubs down was that berating of, you know, inside 50s and tackle pressure and the likes was eventually it, it, it killed the beast or whoever they were playing with got dragged down and the dogs were able just to keep going and roll over. The demons stood up and there were moments, you know, when the dogs were getting to that lead that it looked like, if the demons don't hold strong here, they're going to go down. You know, the lion's going to take down the elephant, really, sort of thing. But that defense, the composure, the demons were able to steady up. Um, and they, the back line really stood up when it was really important because the dogs were going hard. If you look at it there, um, dogs had 12 tackles inside 50 for the match to demons six tackles inside 50. Um, mm. So obviously the dogs were going really effectively. And, and in that first quarter or so, I think they, you know, they were scoring on almost one in every two or more inside 50 entries. Like that pressure was just so phenomenal. But yeah, it was really the demons able to hold strong, the composure, able to, you know, slow down the momentum from the dogs. And I think, you know, once that momentum slowed down, that the dogs kind of fell back and gave up and allowed the demons to switch on their own momentum and, and take it from there, surely. Yeah, and, you know, doesn't winning make a whole lot of a difference to what we remember as well? Like, Bontempelli's game I thought was outstanding, and if the dogs go on to win that, you know, all ifs, buts and maybes, but it's one of the great grand final games, and, you know, we, we see it in, in moments gone past, you know, whether it's an amazing goal that just isn't remembered as much because they go down or a famous mark or a brilliant game. But, um, yeah, I think the, the Ds, we often talk about, going into big games, you know, what can teams do to change this strength that the opposition have? But so often the same things happen because they are so well drilled and and the best teams, they stand up in the biggest games. And I thought they did that. I thought Salem is, is mm. worth a big mention as well. He was he was bloody good too. So but, many underrated and players even just, for the Demons, yeah. Yeah. And even just, I thought Bailey Smith played a pretty good game, but just... Obviously, they did something to make sure that he didn't. I don't think he hit the scoreboard at all, but um, he hit the post. You know, that's actually he did, uh, didn't he? That's he right. Hit that's that right. Post, yeah. And that was going to be my moment of uh, not mm. to not to um segue too quickly, but that would have meant five dogs goals in about six minutes of gameplay. And I reckon honestly, that would have broken Melbourne. Yeah. Had that goal have gone through, he sort of chucked it on the left boot and it just sort of hit the post. Yeah. And I think he realized like, oh, geez, 
And then there was the Lockie Hunter point just yes. before halftime. And I was like, oh, I reckon Melbourne could have been broken in that second quarter and they would have been really jumpy with about a 20-something point deficit at halftime. But and um, with that, with yeah. that Hunter miss, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was from memory a really poor decision or something didn't quite go Melbourne's way. And and it just had that feel of like, gee, if this he kicks this, yeah. you know, all the, all the naysayers of, oh, no, Melbourne, wasn't it, it's it not was, meant to be. Wasn't it <laughs> when holding Bo- the ball? didn't Bont get Petrarca in the middle? That's Bont tackled Petrarca right in the middle and that was like the dog's third mm. or fourth sort of clearance from the centre. And, and we obviously know what the Demons did later on. But w- mm. while we're on that sort of discussion point, did you guys have a moment, Chook or Tiz, that you felt like was, you know, the defining moment that decided you know, the demons run on or maybe stopped the, the Bulldogs' momentum at any point? Yeah, I'd have to say Bailey Fritch, who had an amazing game, um, obviously kicking six, but the one, I think there were five goals, 10 at that stage. And there was just that moment where Harms obviously passed off to him to start off the, light the fire, so to speak. It, they, they'd they missed a few. The Ds had a lot of chances sort of throughout that second and third quarter and probably didn't put, you know, the full... Um, total on the scoreboard and, and really made the most of their chances. But then that, that was just one moment. If, if, he, if he missed, uh, all of a sudden the Ds, you know, they, they have the yips, um, you know, it's going to 5-11. But to kick that one and to obviously help start the fire there was probably, it was one of the biggest kicks of, in Melbourne's history. And um, he kicked a straight like five other, five other goals he kicked as well. So that was probably my moment. If he misses that, uh, it's, it's back to 18 points and the Dogs probably... Uh, sort of go back into cruise control and try and take um, the game by the scruff of the neck. Chook? Yeah, I, I probably don't have anything to add in terms of specific moments. I think I kind of touched on, I just thought that stream of goals at the end of the, the term for the Demons was really what, you know, helped them kick off with that momentum and, and kind of take down the beast there. Um, really, if, if we're touching on certain player performances, and sure you obviously touched on Trelaw and, and Bond's already been touched on. I thought they had... A, phenomenal games of, you know, 27 and three goals, 25 and three goals, which probably could be Norm Smith winning yeah. uh, performances <laughs> if, it, if the game was, was won and done. Um, but really, a player who I thought stepped up majorly for the Demons, and I know most of their midfielders got 25-odd touches, really, but um, Brayshaw, I think, mm. you know, after being a guy who, you know, somehow fluked, seemingly fluked his way <laughs> into the top levels of the brown mode uh, <laughs> some time ago, this year, he seemed to be relatively flat. He was kind of looking lost at times. And I've heard many of these supporters say maybe it was he should have been dropped during the year. But he stood up and was really impressive during the game. And I was really impressed with his performances. Probably not as big and starry as, as Petrarca and the likes there. But I thought his performance was one that um, shouldn't go underrated. Um, yeah, well, he, he broke that goal drought, didn't he, Chuck? With that, he went back with the flight and took that courageous mark and kicked the the first goal in that run of goals in the third quarter for the D's. But yeah, he, he played a fantastic role on the wing. And I think the last probably eight weeks or so, he's like really been a selfish sort of player. And there was one game in particular during the season where I remember everyone was talking about Rayshaw and how selflessly he was playing. And, you know, that's how teams win flags when players um, just commit to a role and don't look for glory, but ultimately they will get uh, team glory. And that run that he had in the brown load, you know, he was playing inside mid. So yeah. he's done really well to to go out to a wing, which is a pretty tough position for your stat sheet. You know, you can sort of run around and do everything for the team, right patterns, defensive side of the pack, all this sort of stuff that the clubs talk about. But you can come back with 14 touches, you know. So he's changed his game, like you said, for the team and hasn't always been viewed positively throughout the year, but he's obviously been doing his job and and got full reward there. But, yeah, much like Chuck, no you know, precise moment that I haven't mentioned already, probably just I felt when Oliver streamed through and kicked that goal, it, I just thought, yeah, this this is going the way of the Demons. It's just got that feel, and they're riding a massive wave here. So that was probably where I thought, yeah, it's going to be a Demon flag. Woohoo! One, one big <laughs> moment, I, I guess, uh, which is would, would have been a much bigger discussion point, and I've, I've got probably my actual moment of the game, but... Just a question to pose to you guys. How big would the talking point of Gorn's not goal been if the Dogs actually won? Because Gorn missed that. He got the goal, but whether the umpire was out of position or not, they certainly didn't review it. But 
it went straight down the other end for a big Bontempelli clunk mark and um, goal from that point. But firstly, did you guys think it was a goal? And secondly, if the Dogs won, would that have been the turning point for the game um, from there, do you think? Um, firstly, I don't think it was a goal. Um, <laughs> it's, it's tricky when... It's tricky when it goes well above the, the post line. It's easy, obviously, when it's on going one side or the other of the post, but it, it, it looked to me like the curving nature made it look like it went through the goals, but it probably went over the post, if anything. Um, if anyone had the best view in the house, it was the goal on who was standing right there. So I'm happy to take that as a behind and, and the people demanding the, match re- the, the goal review system are the same people who who cried out every time a goal review is actually had. Um, if the dogs had gone on to win, I don't think that probably would have been the big momentum swing because <laughs> it sounds silly to say because they didn't win. So obviously if they'd turned around and win, it would have been another moment down the track that helped them get there. Um, but no, I don't think it was a goal. And I think people are kind of happy to just to leave it be. I thought it looked pretty good, to be honest. Um, I thought I thought it was going to be a goal before the umpire made its call, but I saw a behind-the-goals vision of it, and that still wasn't really conclusive. Um, it might have looked like it was, yeah, right on the... Yeah, but a behind just before it goes over through for a goal kind of thing. So, yeah, it was very tough to tell, and uh, you'd have to have lasers or taller goalposts <laughs> to figure that one out. So, <laughs> and that was a big reason for the taller goal, goalposts. I think uh, it took Anthony Rocker to miss a... I'll kick what he believed to be a goal that they, they deemed not to be a goal in the 2002 grand final. Um, so I think that uh, that kicked off the, the high post. But, yeah, it uh, seemed inconsequential um, whether he kicked it or not. But, um, yeah, I, it, looked, it looked pretty good to me. But obviously the umpire is right there in a pretty good spot to be able to – yeah, you can sort of go right behind the ball and get a good line of where it was. But uh, behind it was, so they reckon, sure. And we've still got to sort of back them in too, don't we? Yeah. Like you've got the technology there for in the post or has it crossed the line type of thing. Um, but like Ty says, unless we've got some lasers invested or if we can be absolutely 100% on it, <laughs> you you really got to just back in the guy who's been doing it all year. And is obviously one of the best if he's doing the grand final. But yeah, we'll never know what we're playing is. But um I don't think Hawkins uh, hitting the post against the Saints is, you know, <laughs> look, looked upon as the difference. I yeah. think it's mentioned, but um, yeah. If so, we'll Max Rook kicks a goal after the siren in 2009. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I was glad he kicked that for that reason. <laughs> uh, so the biggest, points the, is better. the biggest, <laughs> I, it's not really a, a specific moment, but the biggest change for me, I think, and we've spoken about already, but the reasoning behind the Demons' big run on of goals was. Luke Jackson going into the ruck. So the Demons had seven goals from the center stoppage. And you can have a guess at which Ruckman was at every single one of those center stoppages. Not Max Gorn, the All-Australian, multiple (laughs) All-Australian Premiership Ruckman, Premiership captain. But the 19-year-old Luke Jackson was at all seven of those center bounces that led to goals. And I think there was three of them in that third quarter, which, which blitzed the dogs. And he becomes only the second person ever to win a rising star and a premiership in the same year after Joel Selwood. So he's already in pretty illustrious company. And he honestly, like if a club was wanting anyone, you'd probably throw number one pick and a million dollars at Luke Jackson right now, if you could get him, but he's probably going to be a Melbourne player for a very long time. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, I'll tell you what, he was, it was super influential and impressive. And it was Gorn's worst game since round 17, actually. And I didn't think he had a great yeah. game, um, all, all considering. It, it felt like I, I saw Paddy Dangerfield in him at times where he was yeah, just he trying was doing so a bit hard. Of, yeah. to like, I, I did just, notice that. And sort of not complaining, but he was looking quite demonstrative when things weren't going his way. And that's when I thought, oh, the demons' tears looked pretty rattled here. Yeah, he. I, I think he, he just wanted it so bad. And he almost went outside of his probably normal game mm-hmm. and acumen to actually try and get the job done where yeah it, it was so interesting it's it nice not not uh, not seeing paddy dangerfield again be, be the player that's sort of at the mercy of that but yeah gone definitely um he, he played okay and played his role but uh jackson stood up uh massively and you know that was that was a catalyst in the end so um no impressive performance yeah it, it could be anything jackson and and it's probably all going to be in the ruck you'd imagine but they talked about when he got drafted how this bloke could 
potentially form into, you know, a guy that could have midfield sort of numbers. He's that good below his knees. But yeah, he he was crucial in those bounces, like you mentioned. I thought Gorn wasn't too bad, to be fair. Like, I probably wasn't one of his best games of all time, but he had the 21 touches for a big guy and the, and the six, six clearances. I, you're right, there were times where he probably was trying to, you know, really put himself and stamp himself on the game. But um, yeah, pretty dangerous combo, isn't it? Bit of Nick Nat and Dean Cox kind of action. Mm. It's going to be brutal. Yeah, certainly was yeah. A, an amazing combination. Chuck on the day. Yeah, it definitely was, and I think it goes. I think there was a Gordon interview where he was on the bench, and they were going to call for him to to go onto the field, and he said, "Nah, let Jacko stay on and, and do his thing because he's doing pretty well." And I think that kind of goes to show that like elite a leader that can say, "Nah, I'm all good for." a young fella to stand up and have his moment is is a really important thing if they were getting belted i'm sure he would have definitely yeah, jumped yeah. on and, and given it a crack but but jackson was was performing really well and um yeah that combination could be something massive for years to come you'd hope certainly will be and we've got one big talking point to get to we're going to go to a quick break and get back to our discussion about the norm smith medalist the biggest game of the year deserves to have the biggest player and the biggest performances of the year. And one man who was widely tipped to take out the Norm Smith medal was Christian Petrarca from the Demons. And he did just that. And we're going to talk about his performance as a whole and where it ranks in the Norm Smith performances of grand finals gone past. Boys, what did you think of Petrarca's performance and where does it rank in all-time grand final performances, Norm Smith performances? What do you reckon? I thought it was amazing, to be honest. I, I thought he was going to crack the 40. Well, technically he did, but then it got taken away. But <laughs> um, It was amazing. Every time he got the ball, even in that first quarter and that, he just seemed to be looking so powerful. That goal that he kicked, worst commentary I've ever heard in my life, BT trying to compare it to Dusty somehow, but oh. ruined the moment. But it was a great kick. Um, his whole around-the-ground performance was really important, and he stood up. He's... He's always kind of been a barometer um, for the for the demons, really. You know, sometimes he can have poorer games and 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 not be there, and other times he can just step up. And obviously, he chose to have his biggest and best game on on the biggest stage of all. It was fantastic performance, and I know Tiz uh, already compared some people to dust to Dangerfield, but um, it was almost similar Danger kicks where he would get the ball and and he put it on his boot, except he kind of was aiming at a person rather than just <laughs> anywhere around the ground. He would get it in the pack and he would low powerful kicks, which seemed to find a target more often than not, which obviously is a risky move when you're just going to hammer it on the boot. And, you know, what do you get 800 or so meters gained with some of those kicks? But um, it was really impressive just how he did. You know, he could have very well have had one of the worst games if a few of those kicks had gone wrong early on and he lost a bit of confidence that, he um he definitely was all over the ground looking really impressive, I thought. Yeah, it's one of the best of all time, for sure. I mean, to have that amount of possessions, get involved on the scoreboard, contested possessions as well was crazy. And you think of so many big moments of the game and, and he was involved in so many of them. So it's always difficult to sort of compare Norm Smith medalists because, you know, they, they are the best player on the day and it can be tough to kind of... um compare them because they've had such an influence on that particular day but it's hard to think of too many more that you know like that was right up there it's funny how that performance was pretty much everything everyone and particularly demon supporters had hoped the tracker could be and when it was most important he was the the guy wasn't he he was the man yeah what a game it was uh i was a bit kind of spewing that say he didn't actually keep the 40 because uh then, yeah, it just would have been another record just broken. But Simon Black so- just had one of the champion data guys at gunpoint. He's like, you better, <laughs> you better minus one on that. He's like yeah. in a box. Like- <laughs> yeah. They didn't ruin your multi-tis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, no multis, mate. Um, all, all pretty clean bill health there. But, yeah, what a what an impressive game it was from him. Like, it, to kick the first goal as well and the way and the manner in which he just absolutely thumped it from yeah. 55 and – uh, it was sensational, obviously. The the goal from the boundary was next level as well. And again, such a big moment. Um, that could have gone anywhere, but you know, the the class and 
the composure for the, for the man to get it through was, was excellent. Um, yeah, he really, yeah, he had a, a real appetite to, you know, kick the footy and, um, yeah, often it, it did, you know, find, find a demons player and yeah, just, just loved his, loved his work through and throughout the contest. And he was, I think he had about five or so score involvements in towards the end of that third term. I think he ended up with about 10, 24 contested possessions, yeah, which is what he, he ended up fit, with. Which I is, think he had the third most score involvements in the grand final history. I think he had 15 tiers, so he was right up mm, there. Yeah, and Bailey Fritch has definitely been discussed. Everyone in the voting gave him two, and I, I tend to agree with that. Um, Jarman kicked six in 97, and... I think uh, McLeod ended up taking the medal home that that <laughs> afternoon, which is interesting because um, just works here. Jarman, Jarman kicked five in the second half when the game was won, um, but I guess getting thirty or so possessions back then was considered like fifty now. But um, yeah, Fritch was obviously great, but I think Petrarca was able to hit the scoreboard and then create the ability for the team to score um, as per the, the scoring involvements that he was able to generate. So. It was clearly, clearly the, the best on ground and one of the one of the great grand final performances um, from an accumulation perspective and uh, impact and damage. What do you think, Langs? Yeah, it was it was pretty up there for me. He, he just was everywhere right from the get go. First goal, as you mentioned, big thumper from almost fifty, and the little dribbler from the pockets. Only only the best players can do that sort of stuff and have you absolutely on the edge of their seat. And Shorty, I, I think you had him down as the as a Norm Smith medalist, but it just seemed like pretty widely accepted that he was always going to win it. And right from the get-go when he first started in his career, it just seemed like he was destined to, you know, win a Brownlow or do something like that and just play in one big game. And he, he just did it and absolutely did it to a T and like it was expected to happen. Yeah. And I think when Hacker might've kicked five, potentially that might've been the same day. Was it the black got 39? I'm not sure, that, but I know. Spot on. Yeah. So isn't it funny, you know, sometimes the goals, you know, they don't always get the cake, but they're, they're super important. So, yeah, no, you're right. Like Petrarca was probably a lot of people's prediction, but rightfully so. He was always going to be the sort of guy that could have that performance, and he did. Yeah, with first goal and Norm Smith, he would have won a few people 100% of their sweeps for the day. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> he made been a few people happy. Ooh, Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, sure. Um, I, I just wanted to add one here. I know grand finals are a major thing for a season. Last week, we were discussing who we thought had actually been the best players for the year. We had our picks between Wines, Oliver and Bont. Petrarca wasn't initially in the discussion because he hadn't won one of the official awards for the year. Is a grand final performance, his grand final performance, I just wanted to know, Compared to, we did say, Lang, is the grand final would impact your overall decision of who you thought had been the best player of the year. Surely maybe Petrarca's performance isn't enough to make him the best player for the whole season. Um, but have you had any leanings towards either any other players? I think you had Bont initially. Yeah, well, and his I performance still think. Definitely <laughs> I can't believe that Bont didn't get one Norm Smith vote. I just find that so hard to believe considering when he kicked that third goal i'm thinking like geez he's gonna he's gonna be he's the best player of the year he's gonna win the norm smith he's gonna be the dog's best ever player and he didn't get one vote which i found you know really interesting and just in the norm smith voting as well like i feel like clayton oliver hasn't been spoken about he had 33 and 10 tackles in a grand final he's gone full octopus tears in a grand final tentacles yep and yeah i mean absolutely not taking away from petrarca at all because he was the most deserving player but yeah, Bont for me, I still think overall is the best player in the comp. Um, but yeah, the fact he didn't get a Norm Smith vote sort of rattles me a little bit because yeah, it was pretty big win in the end, obviously, but he was pretty good for a lot of the game. Maybe with yeah. that, I don't think Trelaw got a vote either. And I think yeah, he had very similar Trelaw numbers, well. but, yeah. but Bont was very like, you could just feel his presence <laughs> through the TV. Yeah. Like yeah. He, he was playing it. Some insane footy, but... grabbed you and slapped you and said, I've just kicked three <laughs> goals and I'm about to take the dogs to a flag. But that's right. And I think Salem may have ended up with a vote. And like, he was really good early mm. when, when the game was really, you know, heated and um, ended up with a goal at the end and he used the ball so well, like better than most Harry players Taylor on the ground. find a way to sneak a backman in there. Yeah. 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 For, for sure. Uh, I'll tell you what though. It's uh, what a, what a game it is to forget for is, um, I, you know, I was sort of going through the, you know, the names and numbers and whatnot. And uh, unfortunately there's definitely a few dogs, uh, you know, that probably sit in that camp, but 
Cody Waitman probably had um, the yeah. worst game of his life. Yeah. Um, he, 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 I think he got a got a good mark late, and then that barely scraped in for a point. And I think he hit his head hit the post, and maybe that's yeah, <laughs> maybe it was down the Google from there. But um, yeah, I'm well, not sure well, you guys while, you've, it. while you've made that point, is we we can touch on if you guys have any thoughts of some players that you know didn't do enough, and I don't think there was any bad performances on the day, but there were certainly some players that weren't going to their sort of expected output. Yeah, I guess probably you know, most of your thoughts go towards Dogs players. And I think Norton you know, certainly would have felt yeah. like you had him in the influential handful. And um, you know, for a reason, his best footy can definitely have a big say in the game. And, and you know, he didn't really have that. A lot of that goes to, yeah, the Ds have a good defensive structure. But you know, when you, he would have been hoping that he could have a massive influence. And yeah, they're probably on a stack of guys that, you think had really poor games, just probably quite a few that were just a touch off. Like they didn't quite elevate, you know, mm. Petrarca and a few others, they elevated to another level. But there are a few doggies that just, you know, wasn't too bad on the stat sheet and that type of thing, but it just wasn't quite at the level they mm. would have liked. Yeah. I'm probably on that same side of the doggies. I know I, I said, uh, <laughs> Every week, I find a way to talk about how I consider the dogs team was ba- was basically just a bunch of midfielders, and their other lines <laughs> aren't really good enough. And I kind of got proven right in the grand final because three goals each to two midfielders. Lockie Hunter snuck in there for a goal as well. Um, but yeah, Waitman, Hannon obviously didn't step up against his old side. Um, the backmen obviously weren't that overly exciting. If it was a Melbourne player, I could say probably underperformed. I'd probably go with Cosy Pickett. I think he only had about four touches in the game. His probably most influential moment was what should have been a push in the back, holding the man free kick against him that led yeah. to a Melbourne goal that yeah. helped push momentum. Even but, in um, that, in all- saying that though, Chuck, he didn't have, you know, disposals, as you mentioned, but he certainly, his pressure was there. And at stages, he was the most dangerous position forward, which caused the Bulldogs back line to panic a bit, Chuck. So he's still, you know, you can have not a big day disposal wise, but be just as important just by positioning and you know move move to allow your other forwards to to therefore score Chuck. I thought yeah, definitely. I definitely agree Sorry. with that. Sorry, I was saying I definitely agree with the um the the pressure aspects of it. I would just consider if there were any Melbourne players who probably underperformed from yeah. what you would expect. He probably, you know, he didn't have that that goal kicking or that dangerous lookingness in my opinion when watching the game. Uh short, I'll let you go back to Bailey. Sorry for cutting you off there, mate. Yeah, I just uh, <laughs> he popped into my mind. He probably is one guy that I couldn't even tell you how many touches he had in the end, but he had a few real shaky he had moments. Some moments early. <laughs> had some crucial stages to sort of set the tone, and you know, yeah, he was probably looking for a shovel to dig a hole at one point. But um, yeah, yeah, it was um, certainly a few areas, and, and it'd be hard not to some guys the dogs would look back and, and there'd be some demons players that sort of go thank god we won because i didn't have my best day but <laughs> yeah you know, james no james jordan was terrible he didn't even get a touch <laughs> yeah. bailey williams was uh yeah the, the next player i had in mind there short so that uh, was a really good pick because yeah, he did have some moments early where he was just you know that 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 drop mark and then fridge just kicks a goal yeah, straight yeah, away yeah um yeah I, I think we've um yeah in terms of mentioning about the game as well just how many poor dogs turnovers we had oh. in the first term, which which sort of kick fired, you know, the D's in the first place. So just um yeah, just the inability to settle early and you know the D's pressure was right up um, early on in the piece. So yeah, Williams obviously you know, probably didn't have his best game and Caleb Daniel had a had a great game as yeah. well because no one went near him. But uh <laughs> Jay yeah, Kolodashny would have had a field day with the uh, turnovers across half back to his. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Taking me back. 2020 PSD PTSD yeah. <laughs> and that was the thing with the Norm Smith like I, I get it largely being D's because it blew right out in the end but I think Daniel got one vote yeah I would have thought I would have thought if any dog was going to get a vote it would have been bonked but that's why we have so many judges I guess yeah and, yeah, and talk, it, talking about Sorry, a, another person who had a bad day at the office tis Basil Zemplis was a bit of all Basil and <laughs> no razzle on the stage. He um, he certainly, <laughs> Andrew Embley might as well have just been a, a random person that's never touched a football in his life because he just walked on stage and Basil just uh, yanked that that one moment of glory Embley had off him. And I, I don't know, it's sort of funny to talk about, but really Goodwin sort of just got robbed of a, 
an iconic speech on the podium and Gordon didn't directly mention, you know, Danaher or Jim Steins or anyone on the podium. And I feel like Goodwin would have mentioned Danaher directly because it's normally the coach that, that does a lot of the thanking for all this, as well as the sponsors, but all the, the, the big names and stuff. But Basil just uh, took the whole show and um, there's been some commentary about his MC work tears. There's no social media. There's nowhere to hide these days. <laughs> uh, you, you do the slightest thing wrong and, and the whole world's um, all over it. So, yeah, I, so just to clarify with with um, Embley, so did Embley present him the medal or did Basil take the medal em- off? Embley gave the medal to Petrarca, but normally the um, they just, the, the, presenter the presenter says, reads, yeah. you know, Basil will say, we've got Andrew Embley to come up and just like in, um, was it 2010 where the bloke was like, Scott Embley. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. Embley didn't yeah. get to have that that moment because Basil just took it off him and he did it fine. But Embley was just like, why why did I get announced as the Norm Smith presenter when I just walked up for nothing? So, Yeah, and something didn't feel quite right when, when Goodwin didn't speak it. You yeah. didn't realise at the time, but after the fact, you were kind of thinking, oh, surely someone else is supposed to say something here. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah, it was a... It was a bit of a blip. Um, that's why you got to bring it back to the MCG next year, Chuck. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit odd. You seem to see that happen every few years because I've seen a few years where the captain has been overlooked and hasn't got a chance to have yeah. a speech, and the coach and the Norm Smith got their speech, but the captain got overlooked. Yeah. Um, I don't want to revert back straight away again to what we were talking about. Just for players' sakes, I wanted to bring up a particular player for the dogs who I'm not sure I did catch either of you guys say. Yeah. Jack McRae probably had his second lowest disposal count for the entire season in yeah. the grand final, 26 touches. I'm not sure if he was being heavily tagged or not, but I, I don't know whether maybe he watched the grand, the brown low and said, all right, people aren't rewarding disposals anymore. I guess <laughs> I'll stop doing that. But I was really surprised by his lack of, you know, ball winning and, and, and impact on the game just to have one final. Yeah. I, I was watching him pretty close because I needed him to get 25 and uh, he had 23 at three quarter time. And I think, uh, I think once the sting came out of the game, so did it. Uh, out of his running abilities but yeah certainly wasn't he was another guy that you know he's a lock for 30 and he just didn't quite have it but um yeah i would have had something to say on the speech stuff but our power went out two and a half minutes after the final siren so i missed oh, that, but, uh, oh no <laughs> oh no legit yeah legit so that was pretty hectic but uh yep simon goodman didn't get to say his words and you didn't get to See uh, Basil take the entire <laughs> show to himself. So. Are you sure uh, your power went out and you didn't just black out from drinking too much? Uh, just like well, lying he cannot neither confirm nor deny those accusations, yeah. Chuck. But uh, boys, did you have any other? Um, that pretty much wraps up our uh, grand final review. And what a what a great game it was, and what a fantastic year it's been for the 2021 season. We move very quickly into the trade period as. Matt Rendell with his croaky voice absolutely is firing shots left, right, and center. And a lot of them aren't hitting very early three days into trade radio. Uh, I noticed Lockie Hunter just on Twitter before. Uh, I think Matt Rendell commented that James Warple wasn't in Hawthorne's best team. And Lockie Hunter just did a laugh react on Twitter to that. So it's all happening on trade radio. But there's there's some big names up around the, the trade speculation. And are there any ones that you'll be keeping your eyes on over the trade period? Yes. Yeah, Geelong's got a bit going on, don't they? And um, I think Rendell also said Crouch isn't in, in Adelaide's best team. Yeah, right. Good, but, uh, <laughs> right, eh? <laughs> yeah, listening to him cough every 12 seconds, is it makes for brutal listening. But now nah, probably Lipinski, I think, will be interesting. Um, pretty interesting to see how the Dogs and the Pies sort of negotiate a few things and keep enough draft points for... Um, Darcy and Dacos so I think that'll be interesting but yeah always a few Chair is going to be interesting to see how it all goes and and like I said Geelong will be probably looking at a couple and, and maybe just for our point of view hoping a few youngsters can maybe stay around yeah I'm, I'm very interested in, in Chera and the likes there I'm, I'm also if we're going to touch on Geelong's perspective and other clubs I'm very interested in actually the off-field uh, levels and what's going to happen with coaches um, 
the likes we've seen James Kelly join the Cats and they've had a few people step away. I'm interested to see what happens there. And and definitely as well with Carlton, with Vossi just getting appointed, mm. I'd, I'd be very interested to see who he surrounds himself with at the club and and how they go there. I, I'm really more interested in the off-field uh, off level of things. But um, yep. players-wise, there's a lot happening and, you know, Media-wise, I'd love to see some some new announcements for commentators at Channel yeah. 7 because that grand final was yeah. really poorly. I don't remember a single line from it. Um, yeah, maybe Hutto can find his way back to Channel 7 one yeah, day. Yeah, we were talking about that during the week, weren't we? That Channel 7 need to throw the number one draft pick at Hutto for sure. Yeah, nice, Chook. Uh, like definitely, and probably if there was any bad thing about the grand final, just their inability to have it, uh, I suppose broadcasted or streamed everywhere um, or KO. Uh, I was able to watch the game okay on, on Channel 70, which is good. But I definitely know, you know some people in the country and, you know, that don't get uh, free-to-air TV super easily. Uh, it was uh, <laughs> abysmal that, that they couldn't get that sort of that with KO. They seem to have the grand final on the brand line, just pure ch- Channel 7. But and only some TVs, specific yeah, brands of TVs, could that was run it on seven plus. And, and tears my awful. my TV as we discussed before the grand final just coincidentally died right before the game, about an hour before the game, and we're trying to <laughs> fix it and tune it and get everything going. We thought we'd just play it through seven plus, but you can't play it on a mobile device, and then you can't cast it to Google Chrome specifically, and then you can't play it on certain TVs. So. We had to just Might get some sort of. No, it definitely wasn't the internet, Daniel. It was the uh, the TV itself. But <laughs> yeah, there was certainly some restrictions going on there. But um, boys, I think that pretty much wraps us up for our official episodes for 2021. It's been another pleasure this year to be uh, talking with you guys all throughout the year, and to have all of our our fans listening and commenting on our social media platforms, which we always appreciate. We will be having some trade periods and stuff and some off-season stuff happening. We probably go through the club-by-club club reviews uh, in the off-season as well. And as always, the, the it's a 24-hour news cycle, but it's a 365-day year news cycle for the AFL as well. So, boys, thank you very much for joining me for this year's episodes of AFL Unlimited. Very Thanks for having be. me along for a few uh, guest appearances, boys. <laughs> We're not training Thanks, you Lange. at our issue officially or? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, appreciate it, Langs, and uh, best of luck with doing those 18 club-by-club um, club reviews. Yeah, thanks very much. And for everyone who has listened throughout the year as well, thank you very much. And as always, please make sure you're getting around our social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Spotify, and all the rest to listen to us. Uh, until next time, you'll hear from us then. But thank you and have a good off-season and good luck for your teams going into 2022. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Twitter. AFL Unlimited, because footy is limitless.